And welcome back once again to American Graffiti, one song at a time. I am your DJ, Rachel Mummert, and again joining me today is Duncan Shields, the host of Tronologically Speaking, a Movies by Minute podcast covering 1982's Tron. Hello, hello. And today we will be covering Minute 18, and we do have a song. It is Louie Louie, which was performed and recorded by the Kingsmen. Mm-hmm. And in this minute, we also have Steve and Lori at the dance. And we also have Steve insulting Mr. Crute, the principal. <laughs> oh, it's the principal. Okay. I thought he was just a random teacher. I think. I, I should double check that. I guess I just assumed he was the principal, but he does only call him Mr. Crute. Mr. Crute. What a name, Mr. Crute. I just love this minute, you know, just the intro because you all all the dancing, all the different, <laughs> yeah, so many different dance styles here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Did you identify any? I thought I saw the twist, but I'm not sure. I'm not much. I'm not much of a dancer. I'm not very good at it. And <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoy watching people who know how to dance dance. I su- I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Did you identify any? Well, there's some uh, spinning and some, yeah, some twisting. There's a, there's a, oh yeah, there's some twisting going on there. I thought, yeah, I was say. a lot of twisting actually. A whole yeah. lot of twisting going on. It <laughs> might be. Uh, there's the one where you like you, the partners are spinning each other. You bring your, yeah, bring your hand up and spin each other. A lot of them just are just going for it though. A lot of them are just wilding out, as they say. Uh, <laughs> My yeah. grandparents one Easter they stayed by or back at our house for a while and they taught us how to swing dance right and oh man i wish i would i mean i can't i i can't remember what they had showed us then but that's one thing i would absolutely love to learn how to do is to authentically learn how to swing dance (laughs) well there might be a chapter in your area they're very uh very popular there was a real swing dance resurgence and phase going on you know it was hand in hand with that sort of burlesque revival there was all these you know 50s kind of comeback trends and uh boy the swing dancing when it's when they go off like like there is nothing like watching swing dance championships. Yeah. Oh it's, yeah. It's like a fascinating Olympic gymnastics. Like they're throwing yeah. each other around. You gotta have so much trust with your partner and Exactly. Uh, just timing and trust. It's like wow. Yeah, such and a, a thing. and just a great time, right? Yeah. All the dancers look like they are just having the time of their life. Yeah. Now, I wonder in this scene, though, because uh, I know from doing some work as an extra in some films, that when you have a scene like this, they do it without music. Oh, yeah. So they can they can mic the actors properly. And then later, they, the sound designer or the sound people will add, this, add the music properly. So it'll go across the cuts evenly. And, and you can believe that there's a song playing. So I'm wondering, and one thing you look for with extras in a, in a scene in a club or a scene with music is see if any of them are dancing on the beat. Oh, okay. See if any of them are dancing anywhere near, <laughs> like, because they'll just, 
you know, quite often if, if an extras wrangler has their, you know, thinks of it, they'll have a metronome or something going oh, okay. where at least there's a visual representation of the beat of the music. So when the people are fake dancing to the to no music, that they're not just all on a different page, right? So looking at the extras here, it's kind of hard to tell. They're all just kind of... They're all just kind of wiggling around. <laughs> I mean, they're having a good time. It doesn't look like they're wildly different from each other. So I wonder, I wonder how they did this. And I like that, uh, you know, the song that comes on, you know, Louie Louie. It's like, here you have Steve and Laurie just really just slow dancing. Yeah, that's a <laughs> great... It's like, uh... <laughs> it's such a nice visual poem of just them slow dancing in the middle of yeah. all these people doing the twist. I love that kind of look. It's, it's cool with watching these two because... You know, she's like Shirley, like from Laverne and Shirley, right? Yeah. And, and he's you know, Richie Cunningham Richie, from Happy yeah. Days. And, and he, I mean, Ron Howard by this point already had like whatever, 80 movie movie and TV credits, like because he was acting since he was like two years old or whatever. <laughs> and she had some. But then, yeah, they didn't, Happy Days didn't come along until after American Graffiti and Laverne and Shirley didn't come along until after. But seeing them here... You know, they're two, they're two iconic symbols of the 50s it, for me growing up just oh, uh, yeah. with Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. is like, you know, Richard Dreyfus is not out of context, but he's just kind of a, a an actor that I know that yeah. happens to be in this film. But these two like – these two like are the fifties. It's like a, it's like an epic uh, crossover where, you know, Happy it Days is. is meeting Liberty and Shirley, but it's, it's <laughs> before either of them, but the, the cultural footprints there for, I can't, I can't unsee this scene being that way. So do we want to talk about the song itself now or go along with what happens in the minute? Let's talk a little bit about what happens in the, in the minute and then. Okay. Because this part, this another reason why this movie kind of missed me at the time is because there's a bunch of cliches in the movie that were never uh, like my bag, you know, like cruising around looking for mm. a girl. That was, I don't think, uh, anything I ever did or accidentally putting your car in reverse. Yeah. You know, or, or, you know, being underage and trying to get liquor, you know, and uh, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. I don't know if I was a, a, a really good kid or whatever, but I never, <laughs> those kind of hijinks was, yeah, uh, a- you know, it wasn't something like I think a lot of people can watch a movie like this and go like, oh man, that's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of something that happened to me and that was not. You know, this movie was kind of synonymous with like Porky's or something in my, in my, having not seen either of them. It was youths doing youth stuff, getting up to, getting up to no good. And I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I don't think I knew what American Graffiti was. Apparently I didn't because after watching it, I'm like, oh, I had the, I had the wrong impression. This is a beautiful film. But, uh, and, but then this scene too, like there's a bunch, there's a couple scenes in this movie where adults are idiots. Yeah. You know, like uh, anybody that has, you know, is over the age of 40 and, and has a has a profession is like a clueless, <laughs> dumb person. <laughs> There's a few scenes like that. And this is one of them. And I don't really understand this scene when he's like, you know, get lost, marblehead. I know. Because I... <laughs> It's such a weird. It's a. It's a weird burn. It is. And kiss a duck. I'm like. I know. What is happening? Was that a saying? Is that? I don't. 
I know. I, that's what I'm curious about, too, because their vote, yeah, like you said, they're very weird burns to... Because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, is that like the equivalent today of, you know, go go F yourself or go, I I guess, mean, like, go kiss right? a duck? It's yeah, like duck, marble head. It's, duck rhymes with something, so maybe kiss a duck true. is like a, it's like a like English rhyming slang or something, like, you know. <laughs> but yeah, marble head is just kind of... I guess it's just because he's he's he's. I'd be more confused than <laughs> insulted. Yeah, I'd be like, "Did you just call me Marblehead? What? <laughs> I don't. So how? <laughs> like, but I don't understand. That's another cliche of like sassing the teacher. You know, sa- oh, sassing the principal. Really, really. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> He's so rude. Like he's so rude. I love uh I love Cindy Williams's face though watching the exchange cuz she's just like, "Oh my god, what is happening? Are you actually like she's really nervous about what's yeah. going on." She gets that like a nervous smile. Yeah. Like it's she's proud wonderful. of him but nervous and then she's like, well, "Oh crap. I I still have to go here another year." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I better uh, wipe the smirk off my face. <laughs> That's right. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, she's still got to be there. Like, I'm glad you're having your moment, but I have to come back here. <laughs> yeah. And I just wonder why, like, why does Steve insult him? Because, I mean, you know, you go through this movie and, like, Steve's kind of the model student, you know? Yeah. He was, like, valedictorian. He was a good, you know, he was just like a, at least through, for teacher, you know, through teacher's eyes and stuff, he was a good kid. So it's like, where does this come from? Is it, is it just kind of like graduation high where he's like, man, I'm out of here and I'm just going <laughs> to... Is it something he's always wanted to say to Mr. Crew? <laughs> I guess so. Like, I hope that that's the case. I hope that Mr. Crew is actually a jerk and has yeah, that's, yeah. actually rode him for like four years and so that this is somehow justified. Well, I did wonder too when he gets... After him, you know, like, oh, if you want to do that, go out somewhere, you know, where he's, it's like, they're just slow dancing. They're not like, you know, like, <laughs> they what are they doing they wrong? <laughs> well, slow dancing back in the day was, you know, spooning leads to forking and whatever. That's yeah, the, that's they, And also those... And I, I don't know why he's saying go out to the parking lot because, like, many a baby was made in those cars. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, those, <laughs> they had they had couches in the back, you know, like yeah, they were, exactly. These days, in a car to go or whatever, you're gonna. Just, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine too. Like you, you, you know, life finds a way and all that. But those cars back then, especially the station wagons, yeah, like a queen size bed in the back, you know, like <laughs> so. But yeah, I guess you always had to have like six inches between That's each other. True, yeah. and, you know, the nuns with the ruler in the Catholic schools, you know, you <laughs> stay apart. And... They're not six inches apart. No. So he's, <laughs> I guess he's just doing his chaperone duties or whatever. But he's. That's true. He didn't seem like he was being particularly jerkish about it. Just kind of, all right, all right, all right. You know, stop, yeah. stop what you're doing. So this, his lippiness to the, to the principal kind of comes out of nowhere, like you said, because mm-hmm. he's supposed to be the hero of the film and a really good kid and uh so i'm kind of like he doesn't seem like it in this he seems really entitled and uh, a little spoiled and it's the part of it's the part of the 50s like there's this you know this movie is a culprit in the that like if you were uh especially white and male and straight in the 50s Mm -hmm. 
best time ever. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> right. But if you were not those things, even being a woman back then, like is 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 better Gosh, now yeah. than it was in the fifties. But if you were black or gay or, or or anything like that, like this, if this movie was focusing on a on a different group of people, it would be a very different film. Yeah. Right. Oh, so yeah. so when he's just like you know screw you principal ha ha <laughs> suck on this you know I'm yeah. kind of like mm, you feel entitled and you feel permission to do yep. that because you know nothing that bad is going to happen to you and i guess that's kind of part of what bothers me about the about his uh about his behavior towards the principal as well i've yeah. never been a huge i myself have never been a huge rejecter of authority so i don't i don't understand this i just i yeah i just hope that it's a personal conflict that's finally come to this point because he's like i don't i'm not under your care anymore so kiss a duck marblehead <laughs> I just wonder if he's just so ready to be out of there and he just wants to grow up. I mean, with what happens earlier with him and Lori, you know, yeah. him telling her, you know, or we'll still be together, but see other people and oh, everything and just kind of. Such a tough scene. He starts she, off oh. this movie not as our my favorite person. No, and she takes <laughs> at it all. On, she just like, she really takes it on the chin like a champ. She does such a good performance because he's like. Yeah, we can uh, see other people, I guess, right? You know, and she's, you can see it just, it, yeah. it rocks her world, but she's trying to like not ruin this night, you know, because it's no, one, of the, yeah. one of the last nights they have. So she wants to play it like, let's be pleasant, but it's killing her. This whole movie, his whole, his like, and that's the thing, right? He's, it's, he's, he comes out of the gates like that. Yeah. Let's have an open relationship. I'm like, is this the, <laughs> is this the fifties or the seventies? Like, how I know. That, you know? <laughs> Yeah. So I yeah, and then with this scene too, I guess I guess the conclusion I'm coming to is I don't really I don't really like Richie Cunningham and these uh, I don't like Ron Howard's characters in these oh, in yeah, this film. No. He kind of gets on my nerves a bit. I understand he's going through something very natural and you know teens are going to teen or whatever, but yeah. And I guess I never. It's harder to connect with him and his character. Because because I I've never had that you know or you know I've never had that sense of entitlement I guess yeah. you know where I could feel like hey if I just say go tell somebody to kiss a duck then <laughs> then I'll be you know coast through and I'll be okay <laughs> yeah for sure same with me right so um, I don't really get where he's coming from here but it's a it's still a nice it's still a nice scene a, a nice moment of them slow dancing while everybody else is uh, dancing but yeah we can talk about. Um, the song. Which was very interesting. I didn't know. I've heard the song many, many times before, but it's very interesting looking further into it. <laughs> I was really surprised. Me yeah. too. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, yeah. I, I don't. Because I first started off because I, I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure this was an animal house. And that's what kind of set me off on the, I was like, what? <laughs> was it? Was it an animal house? Yeah. And because um, it's the song that Bluto talks about with the, or he's trying to teach him like the quote, dirty lyrics of right. this song. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where like my eyes were opened of like, I was like, that really happened? <laughs> like, Yeah. Like I thought it was kind of like, you know, like a, what was it uh, in the in the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band album when uh, apparently in the background you can hear John Lennon say I buried Paul and oh, uh, yeah. yeah like so so Paul McCartney died 50 years ago and he's been replaced by a clone or they were faking yeah. their, their weekend at Bernie's <laughs> situation where they were 
were faking that he was still alive. (laughs) But that's kind of like just silly conspiracy nonsense. But yeah, the Kingsmen were the subject of an FBI investigation. Yeah, for like two years. (laughs) Right? Because of their supposed obscenity in the lyrics. And I think it was just because, you know, you can't really definitely interpret the lyrics. No. So I think that... (laughs) Like you can see them written down and you're like, I, I guess those syllables fit, you know, yeah. <laughs> sure. You know, but they're like, and also the song was just huge, right? Yeah. Like one of the biggest, but I didn't real like the Kingsmen themselves have another really good song that I love called the Jolly Green Giant. Okay. I've heard of that. I don't know if I've actually heard the song. It's, it's, uh, there's like, you heard about the Jolly Green Giant. You know, and it's like, oh, this song about the the Jolly Green Giant. But there's a guy in the background, one of the backup singers, and he's just uh, shouting, you know, like in, um, what was that Coen Brothers movie with Adam Driver in it and Oscar Isaac, where he's uh, a folk singer. But there's a, there's a scene with Oscar Isaac and Justin Timberlake and Adam Driver, and they're singing- oh. A pop song about going to outer space. Yeah. Like, please, Mr. President, I don't want to go to outer space. But Adam Driver is in the background and he's just going, outer space. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, there was always somebody in the background in the 50s, like in Sha Na Na, Bowser, you know, it would be kind of almost like a precursor to... Uh, to the hype man or whatever. There was just one person in the background who would say an occasional word. Okay. And so in the background of the Jolly Green Giant, there's just one guy shouting out food items. Oh, It's fun. just like beans, corn. You know, That'd be it's, amazing. It's a, it's a wonderful song. But so that's why I was like, oh, the Kingsmen. They did that uh, Jolly Green Giant song. They These guys had a lot of good hits. This was their biggest by far, though, I yeah. imagine. Yeah, because it was written and composed by Richard Berry, which mm-hmm. he said no relation to Chuck Berry. Right. And it was recorded, I think, in like 63 by the Kingsmen, who were from Portland, Oregon. I never knew that before. Oh, <laughs> me neither. Oh, they're from Portland. Cool. And yeah, they had the two-year FBI investigation because religious and conservative groups thought that Louie Louie was profane and obscene. And it seems like pretty much after two years, the FBI was just like, I no, like they they were just like, okay, I think we've wasted enough time and manpower <laughs> and tax money. We don't know what the song means or says, but yeah. I don't think it's obscene. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's interesting because uh, when it initially came out, it didn't do that didn't do that well. But there was no. a, a Boston DJ, Arnie Ginsberg, was given the record by someone who was pitching it, and uh, he thought it was funny. Because it's so rough. It's a really rough song. It sounds yeah. it's almost like a garage band kind of stuff. But so he played it on his program as like the worst record of the week. <laughs> but the listeners were like, this is this is awesome. You know, it's like that punk, that punk kind of, you know, that song Wipeout, that instrumental song Wipeout? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? So now it's kind of quaint surfer rock or whatever. Yeah. But Back in the day, that was like Metallica, right? That yeah. was kids were like, "What is happening? Like, this is <laughs> incredible!" Like the energy and the magic of it, and the yeah, the roughness of Louie Louie, I think, is is similar to that. It's almost like punk rock in a way because it's it's like it was, you know, it sounds like you're in someone's garage, uh, just thrashing around on on instruments, having a good time. And the fact that the lyrics don't make any sense is even better. It's like the closing credits to uh, WKRP in Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah. Right? Where the guy <laughs> did a take 
where he's like, I don't have lyrics yet, but I've got this, I've got the song. So I'll play the song and I'll just make up some stuff for the lyrics. And then, uh, so do you, do you like it? You know? And, and they were like, yeah, let's just use that version. Cause that's great. And he's like, well, I, but I didn't, there's not any actual words in it. He's like, it doesn't matter. It sounds wonderful. And when you hear that song, you're like, oh yeah, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's great. But I was looking up, um, I was wondering, are there any bands that sing in fake languages or gibberish languages? And uh, oh. there's a lot. There's like Sigur, wow. Ro- Sigur Ross is one. I, f- I always thought they were just singing in Icelandic or, or wherever they're from, but they're singing in a made up. Wow. Uh, made up. And uh, the Cocteau Twins, they did a lot of singing in just almost like singing in tongues where they just made some, you know, just made some, some syllables that sounded good. And then occasionally one of them will sound like the word heart or microphone or, or something like that. So you're like, oh, Oh, the, okay. So there's words in there, there's right? I'm just, <laughs> you know, it, it's still enough to sort of make you think maybe you're just mishearing it. But there's a, oh, and a lot of metal bands, a lot of metal bands like to sing in just made up languages. So it's kind of cool. You could do a whole thing on just, I didn't, I thought there'd be like 10, but I there's know. Like 150. <laughs> it was lots. I couldn't imagine. That'd be, I would think like twice as hard because you'd have to, I mean, not only is it like a made up language, but it's like you have to. <laughs> know how to you know you have to be on the same page as the rest of the band with this fake made up language and (laughs) that would be (laughs) twice as hard to make it but at the same time like with like with the lyrics in this song it's like it would almost feel good or when you you know you just want to sing and you just want to be like it's like you could just sing these lyrics and you can make them whatever you want like however you want to yell them out and sing them it's like go go do it have have at it Yeah, right? Because this song reminds me of, and I don't think it was too terribly later, of Hang On Sloopy, which sure, ironically is Ohio's state rock song. But oh. it just just the, the, the rhythm and, like you said, like the musicality of it, how it sounds, yeah. just reminds me a lot of that song too. Definitely, definitely. There's a fascinating bit in this movie where uh, the hot rod guy, I just can't remember what that character's name was or what is. John? Yeah, but he says, uh, he turns off the radio at one point. He's like, yeah, the music's music's gone downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was a very interesting thing because, you know, being born, I was born in 1971. So the 50s songs are just like, they're just 50s songs. Like if somebody, you know, I could probably tell you convincingly the difference between songs from 1981 and songs from 1985. But to somebody that was, you know, born in 98, they'd be like, I, it's all just 80s music. Yeah. So the, the concept that, or what year is this movie supposed to take place in? Is it 55? 62. Or? Oh, right. That's the other thing, yeah, too. Yeah, because it's the Where is, Were You in 62. That's right. Yeah, on the Where Were You in 62. And that's the other thing is that decades don't last like what we think of as the 60s, you know, the sort of the real, you know, flower power, 60s, you know, all that all that design work and stuff. That's like 1967 to like 1974. Yeah, yeah. You know, and a lot of these decades that we think of, like what I think of this movie as a 50s movie. Oh, yeah. It definitely feels like it. And it's, it's not. It's a 1962 movie. Yeah. And I think that's... Like when you're making a movie and you want to have cars in the background, you know, if you're making a movie set in 1998 and 
you know, somebody perhaps inexperienced will put a bunch of 1998 cars in the background. And you're like, yeah. no, these aren't a bunch of millionaires. Not everybody has the money to buy this year's car. You're going to have, you got to have a bunch of cars in there that are 10 years old yeah. or 12 years old. And they're just, you know, being held together with, with hope and yeah. regular checkups. <laughs> and so you see that in this movie has a really good attention to detail in that regard. But it's also a reminder that the decades overlap each other and that you can the fact that you can critique the music of the era that you live in <laughs> to that degree and the idea that somebody's, oh, it's all gone downhill since Buddy Holly died. Because one thing yeah. that, that bothers me is um, when people say, oh, they don't make music like this anymore. You know, yeah. when, when I was a kid, the music was amazing. Now the music is garbage. I'm like, you are dead wrong. Like, you are dead wrong. There is so much good music happening right now. Yeah. And we have unprecedented access to it. And you can go down a rabbit hole of specificness that has never been possible before. You know, if you like 8-bit 80s synth metal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there are 10 bands that you can find yeah. right now that do that. Like, yeah. you can't, like, I understand, they say that smell is the the... The biggest precursor of nostalgia, right? That you catch a whiff of something and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" Oh yeah. You know that that perfume, the smell of that bread reminds me of that vacation mm -hmm. I had, or or whatever. But I've I've never really had that level of nostalgia attached to smell. Yeah. But music's a different, music. you know, when you feel those those hits of the first songs that really spoke to you, you know, that really yeah. moved you, that really took you, or even songs like Louie Louie here, the first songs that you just could freak out to, right? Yeah. Just, just lose yourself and wiggle around like you're saying with the made-up lyrics like it doesn't matter what the song's about you're just like we gotta go you know and uh yeah yep. yeah 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 you know, and and i think that's part of what makes this movie so brilliant in itself too is like you said you know a lot of these songs depending on when you grew up you could listen to it and it brings you right back to your childhood yeah yeah for sure like i remember uh every christmas i would get a cassette tape and uh you know, one year would be like Paul Simon's Graceland and the next year yeah. would be like Eurythmics and the next year would be like, you know, Love and Rockets or something. But we would, all day, we would play the tapes over and over again. Oh, yeah. So that's just seared into my brain of like mm -hmm. dancing around to that year's big tape or whatever. And uh, so, I, yeah, I can see, I can see that being, and this movie is wall-to-wall -wall music. So it goes without saying it's wall-to-wall -wall nostalgia. The song, Louie Louie, it was one of the first songs to bring a Latin influence. Okay. Which I didn't, I don't detect. No. Right? But then there was, uh, it's, there's a song by uh, Rene Touzet and the Cha Cha Rhythm Boys called uh, oh. El Loco Cha Cha Cha. And it's basically, you, you, when you play that, you're like, oh my God, this is Louis, this is like uh, Louis Louis, except it has some marimba. And uh, maracas or something in it, where it, you really—it's—it's it's extremely Latin-sounding song, but the rhythm of Louie Louie is is right there, front and center. And huh? you're like, oh wow, there you go. That's that's wild. So yeah, there's all these influences that went into Louie Louie. That um, it's got this really rough sound, but it's also Latin-influenced. Uh, it sounds like one of those songs that almost didn't take off. Oh yeah. And then became huge, but it was at this it was at this magical crossroads of influences and opportunity. And then I guess scandal doesn't hurt. <laughs> You're like, what are they saying? You know, like, what, <laughs> what is is it dirty? I don't know. Like uh, they're being investigated <laughs> by the FBI, you know. Yeah, that makes it even more 
must listen to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. And you, you know, like the like a precursor to playing the metal records backwards <laughs> to hear the to hear the messages to the devil yeah. or whatever. You know, one one thing I, I saw in the in the behind the scenes here was that George Lucas uh, worked in a foreign car service, mm -hmm. and he wanted to be a race car driver and mechanic, and then he nearly died in a car crash, and then that's when he was like, okay, I'll be a I'll be a director. I didn't know that. But it, it explains his romance with uh, with cars, you know, front and center in this movie. But you know, it gets you it gets you thinking about what could have been like if he hadn't had that car crash. Oh yeah, he never would have gotten into directing. Because it's hard, you know, in retrospect to think of him as a. <laughs> I mean, you see him in you know behind the scenes and just you know Star Wars and everything, and it's like that guy was going to be a race car driver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, right. Who knows? I mean, who knows? Yeah, he stays calm, so I imagine that's something yeah. you really, you really need to do as a race car driver is uh, keep a lid on it while you're taking those turns. You can't, you can't panic yeah. in the slightest, and I think that's something that seems to be something that he has. I like the scene with Wolfman Jack. Yeah, I love that we get a little of that here. A lot of this movie is 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 so good, but I, yeah, we can just focus on the uh, stay on target. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the whole movie, but I know, you know. So I was trying to with the Wolfman Jack. I was trying to get the gist of. I mean, I'm sure it was just like a little comedy bit, but I was like, what, what? <laughs> At the very end of this minute, we get that little blip of it on the radio, and I was trying to decipher what exactly was happening. <laughs> Yeah, he's something else. Wolfman Jack was a really big deal. Which I had uh, never, before, you know, before this, I had never, I may have heard of him like very little, but I mean, I, I, I never knew much about him before. <laughs> oh, cool. He was a, when you think of a radio DJ, he wins it. I can't, I can't, I can probably, like the only other radio DJs I can name are fictional, like Dr. Johnny Fever or whatever. Or, oh, yeah. Oh, I guess Dr. Demento. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Because he was the one that gave Weird Al his big break. But Wolfman Jack's the king. So was he, because it sounded like George Lucas specifically wanted him himself for that role. Like he didn't want anybody to play Wolfman Jack. He wanted wolfman jack as himself yeah but i think he also accepted that it might not happen and was really happy when they got him yeah because i guess i thought that this movie made wolfman jack big that he debuted in this movie or something but that was that's not the case at all he was already huge and that it was uh it was good that they then they got him for this movie which was like oh my gosh yeah. visit visiting royalty wolfman jack you know and that's what i read where i think george lucas gave him a percentage of oh. royalties on this movie but it kind of you know on that it kind of set him it set wolfman jack for life he was oh yeah like money wise he was like hey, i'm good <laughs> yeah yeah, like uh, Alec Guinness taking a, a percentage yep. of the toys in Star Wars, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, or no, I think he got like a, a like a percentage of the gross of the movie or something instead of the net, and uh, so he just was like cha-ching, <laughs> but he was big enough to to command that. Although you know, at the time, yeah, nobody, nobody, like everybody was like, this is a risky a risky gamble. I remember seeing an interview with Will Ferrell about the filming of Elf. And how he's he's running around in downtown New York in an elf costume, being like a giant child. And he had these moments of like, am I making a turkey? This feels like I could conceivably be making a huge mistake. 
and making a, a really bad movie. And you can feel that. You can be like, oh, yeah, I can see how how you – like you just – you make these movies and it's all educated guesses and you hope for the best. Yeah. You know, and if you're a real visionary and you want to make something that's never been done before, nobody's going to back you because they're like, well, that's – you want me to put eight million of my dollars into a roll of the dice? You know, yeah. <laughs> forget it. You know, unless you've got like this movie, it was produced by Francis Ford Coppola. So there's like a, you got to have someone that champions you to the investors that already has a reputation. And with movies like this, because I remember in the other, in the behind the scenes, they talk about how the George Lucas as a director would just let them talk to each other and just say, hey, just talk. We'll go through the scene five or six times. And then, uh, and then I'll tell you when it's over. And then he said he would direct in the editing room, you know? Yeah. And I think that, uh, I don't know if it feels to me like his directing style hasn't changed. Yeah, that's what he, yeah. But actors have, or the industry has, or something, because it, it doesn't feel like he's changed his style at all. It's just that he's getting very different results now than, than, yeah. than he used to get. So I wonder what the switch was there. I do, I do wonder what has happened to films where his style has stayed the same, but the results are so different. There's a naturalness to it. Just like in the very beginning when you kind of get introduced to Toad right. and he crashes his Vespa. That yeah. wasn't meant – I mean, that was a total – he really crashed it. He didn't intentionally – I mean, he it was just like, whoops, I messed it up. And yeah, it looks so natural for the movie and for that character that they're just like, we're going to keep it. <laughs> yeah, <when> he, <laughs> And it's when brilliant. He, it's great because he gets off and there's a moment that you translate as him going, oh, man. I, oh, geez. How, how are my friends going to react to me now that I've cried? But what he's actually doing is waiting for George Lucas to say, to cut. cut. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah. well, that obviously is on the cutting room floor, but then no one yells cut. So he's like, I guess I'll just keep going. Yeah. You know? And it's just brilliant because it's like, yep, you, that is exactly who that character is. Yeah, <laughs> he is the guy who would crash into. <laughs> yeah. Because he really, yeah, he really crashes it in there. And there's, uh, <laughs> and there's no way you could say, okay, crash it as hard as you can into the wall, right? It's, yeah. And have it look natural. Yeah. So it was an accident. And there's um, a YouTube channel called Star Trek Intakes where a guy is editing outtakes back into the finished scene. Oh, fun. <laughs> so it's it's the finished scene, it's the finished scene, and then there's a bit where an actor flubs a line and then they go back to the finished scene. There's obviously it's 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 supposed to be comedic, but it's also um it also adds this layer of realism. You know, when Jordy LaForge is like, Well, if we reroute the positronic main coupler through the uh oh geez. <laughs> What's it called? You know, and <laughs> you're like, yeah, that would happen. Oh that, yeah, that would happen. And so, it, yeah, it's it's nice when you when you include something in a film that's very natural. And all the dialogue in this movie, especially here when they're out in the parking lot talking to each other, like all the dialogue is very very natural. I think there's longer shots. Yeah, it's, it's not cutting on every line. You know, no. like I think that's something. A long shot really puts you in the room with people when they're having a conversation. Yeah, and. uh there's a scene in Sling Blade where they're trying to kick the abusive father out of the house and they're throwing juice at him and fruit and they're telling him to get out and everybody's yelling and uh, there's like no cuts. It's like this five minute horrible situation where you just, you want no part of it, but the camera, because it's not, because it's not cutting, just puts you right in the room. 
it's like you're standing in the room with them watching it happen because it's it's not cutting so you're you're not being sort of yanked out so a lot of the conversations here are are similar where there's they're not afraid to just hold on them have the actors talk to each other and let them really shine and let their connection shine and it's what's so great about the the, the last minute and this minute and so many minutes in this film is you're just watching people talk and it feels really really natural i'd like to see this script you know, because some American graffiti feels a lot more loosey-goosey. And I just, I really wonder how much improv was involved and how how the page translated to the stage. How uh, I'd love to compare what was actually said in the film with the screenplay. Tierney had provided us with it. And it's pretty, I mean, a lot of it's pretty similar to what is translates on screen. Okay, cool. It's kind of fun reading reading through it. <laughs> yeah, they really they prepared a lot. The actors all say they rehearsed their hearts out, and uh, for a lot of them, it was a really big project yeah. for them to be involved in. So they were, and they were all young. So they were like, I don't want to, I don't want to disappoint. Yeah, some of them sat, it was shot there. it sequentially. Oh, right. To make it more real, to be like, okay, as the night goes on, you know, the characters get more, you know, the, the natural tiredness of, and, you know, going through the movie. Yeah. Sequ- sequentially translates on screen very well to as the night progresses. <laughs> I remember when I was younger finding out that there were movies that were not shot sequentially. Oh, I know. Right? And being like, how, what? And so then, how did they put it together? Then the, uh, the talent involved in acting became clear to me. When you're like, okay, because this is the location and we've only got it for the day, we're going to shoot the three scenes that need to be at this location. So in the first one, uh, you're just going to work. Uh, in the second one, uh, your father's been murdered and you survived an assault. And then in the, in the third one, uh, uh, you've really got your act together, but you're like 10 years older. But we're going yeah. to film all those today. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was like that must be impossible. That can actually happen, you know. And uh, but that's what—that's the majority of movies are actually shot out of sequence. So I think it must be really nice to shoot a movie in sequence for an actor. I'm sure it must be really nice because you get a real linear feel for what happens to your character, and it must oh, yeah. take some pressure off the pretense of the job, you know, where you can sort of actually go on the journey with your character rather than hopping around in time like a like a time traveler. Yeah, exactly. You ever hear of the uh, the Dogma Manifesto? Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a style of filmmaking where you have to use ambient sound and available light. Oh yeah, yeah. And it has to be shot real time. You know, like if it's a ninety minute film, it's literally ninety minutes of a party, or you know, like you can't hop around in time and you can't light it or use anything fake uh, to to create the movie. And it's just like a a challenge. You know, some of them are bad. Some of them are great. Yeah. But this movie kind of reminds me of of that style of filmmaking. You know, like the lighting guy talks a lot about how they lit it and how they had to like make certain cars look shiny or, you Mm. know, put a light up where the street light would be, but make it like, you know, 15 times brighter because everything would be in shadow if we used an actual street light. So, yeah. But they do such a good job of it's really immersive. The film is really, really immersive. Yeah. And, uh, they do a really good job of that. But Louie Louie, I've got a newfound appreciation for that song. Me too. <laughs> Did you have, uh, what was your experience of, of high school? 
that. Did you have a like? Did you have a prom? Did you have a like a king and queen of the prom? That kind of thing was that something that actually happened to you? Yeah, we had um, we had junior senior prom where, where like you you could go junior and senior year, and if you were like a lower classman, like freshman or sophomore. If you were invited by an upperclassman, you could go. And we did have now. I'm now I'm misremembering my high school. <laughs> we had homecoming, king and queen. Oh, okay. so homecoming was a was a uh, separate dance that was more in the fall. Mm-hmm. Prom was more in the spring, closer to graduation. Yeah, we had homecoming, king and queen, and homecoming was more everybody. You know, all classes. Oh, okay. Could go. So I didn't really find prom to be that big of, I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it really. I yeah. went both years, but I was like, I don't see the big deal about this. Yeah. Cause in the movies, it's really portrayed as this huge night. Yeah. And, uh, I just never had that up here. And I wonder if that was, but even, even in this movie when they're like, oh, we're going to go to the prom, a bunch of people are like, oh, what? Yeah. Don't don't do that. (laughs) That's, what are you going to do? Drink some punch and dance some dances? Like, come on, stay out here, cruise the strip, have an actual Friday night. So, you know, I I suppose it's not a big deal for everybody. Which I think the most surprising part is how and i'm sure as you know years have gone on how how much money especially girls can drop for a dress i mean it's like i think about what i you know wedding dresses versus prom dresses it's like a lot of times people will not hesitate to drop like hundreds of dollars and it's like but but why? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess prom comes from the word promenade. Oh, okay. And that I makes guess sense. the promenade is, I don't know if this is related or not, but like, you know, debutantes and their coming out parties yeah. where they're like, you know, they're being sort of presented to society. It's very old world, right? Like very 1700s royalty where you're like being, you know, presented as a as a, a viable, marriable, you know, your, your, your piece is on the board, your piece is on the chessboard now, that yeah. kind of, that kind of coming out thing. So I wonder if that's somewhat connected to prom where, you know, the, the dress, this is a, the, the prom dress is something you're only ever going to wear once, a lot like a bride gown where it's like yeah this is this is a this is a really big deal you know like i'm sure you can spend a lot of money on a limo and a corsage and yep and renting a tux or whatever but yeah those uh those dresses we used to have an event here called dress up and bowl that i ran with a friend of mine and the idea was you put on the finest clothes you have and go bowling and oh, cool. uh, so it was like all these people in these in these really really amazing clothes bowling and uh one year this uh, friend of mine angela she found a prom dress at the secondhand store for pretty cheap. And it was this pink taffeta masterpiece, like just beautiful, amazing dress that she scored for not too much money in the the secondhand shop. And it must have been somebody's dream dress back in the day because it was was a real piece of art. So yeah, I have no doubt that people can spend a tremendous amount of money on on their prom if it matters to them. And now homecoming though, I'm curious about now, why do they call it homecoming? And that, I think it's more... It's like you've all returned to school and the school is like your home or like... is it Yeah. 
the and football a lot of team it, I has think, been like a lump, fighting. Yeah, because that's like the big like football because that happens during football season. And is that because the football team has been competing? on the road and now they're back so it's like the homecoming of the of the game too yeah i know i'm curious now the origins of the (laughs) yeah because those those are the two big ones right like the the homecoming king and queen and then the prom do you remember if your homecoming king and queen was always uh because that's what happens in this is that what happens in this minute they get selected to be the homecoming king and queen is that what happens here they were, I think, in previous min- – well, because I know – because I think Lori was like the head cheerleader. Yeah, they, they, which is news to me. Like I think when they mention it in the dance, when they're like, please welcome to the – oh, no, yeah, it's in a minute previous to this because they're, they're fighting when yeah. they get mentioned. They get called out from the stage, you know, please welcome the homecoming or the whatever. The, the king – do they call them the king and the queen? I don't know. But they get spotlighted and a dance to themselves and she's the head yep, cheerleader and he's, I guess, the valedictorian or something. Like, but it's kind of cool that I had no idea up until that point. Yeah. They haven't gone the extra mile to point out that she's the head cheerleader. She's not dressed in a cheerleader's uniform. She doesn't see her other cheerleader friends. Mm-mm. She just she's just somebody that goes to school that happens to be the head cheerleader, which is an interesting choice. Uh, which I really I really like that they just sort of they didn't harp on that, you know, because the the opportunity to do a fifties movie with a head cheerleader, you'd think they would she'd have pom poms in the back of the truck or yeah. something, you know, like I don't know. She, yeah, she'd have that uniform on the whole movie. And- yeah, she'd have <laughs> at least the skirt, you know, she'd have the, yeah. the the sweater, but she'd at least have the little cheerleader skirt or something. But they didn't do that, which was really uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, but I think our homecoming. I mean, they were kind of more. You kind of had a lot of diversity, I think, among ours. They weren't always like you know the most popular people in the class. Good, good. That was nice. Yeah, I can't even remember who who they were in my year, but that always seemed kind of a, a strange thing to do. But I guess it's kind of like an election, right? People you vote, right? Yeah. One thing about this clip is I really like the uh, the gold mic that the that one of the singers is singing into. Oh, I know. Those <laughs> 1950s microphones were so yeah. like a Flash Gordon laser gun or something. There's something yep. uh, really beautiful about them. And I think you get a very certain sound out of them as well. It's not the big blocky one with all the air vents on it. It's just nope. that really small. It almost looks like the top of a saxophone or something. It There's does. Like a, yeah, it really does. Very utilitarian. But uh, yeah, I like the look of it. There's an aesthetic to the to the design sense of the 50s and 60s that I really, really, really like. One thing I didn't yeah. know about the Canadian flag is that it was designed in the 60s. Oh, really? Yeah. Our our flag as it is now with the red maple leaf didn't come across an, until the 60s. And once I found that out, I was like, because before that, it was like a, you know, a riff on the Union Jack, you know, like some okay. sort of British Commonwealth flag, like, you yeah. know, like Australia and all the rest of the colonies, they had got some variation on that but we picked our own and when i found that out i'm like oh i can see it now because that's real 1960s design when you look at all the 1960s logos there's this stark simplicity right you see it in in the fashions you see it in this microphone here you see it in everything that comes out even in the their version you know when you ever see a 1960s movie that's set in the year 2000 you know they're uh everything's really stark 
and uh, it's got like angles and, and it's a real clean, not a lot of clutter. It's very austere. Yeah, in that way, I can sort of see the 60s in this movie. I can see that sort of design sense starting to starting to come out. But I like that they're all dressed up in their matching dinner jackets here. They've got their I red... Like uh, and that band... I know in the movie they're called Flash Cadillac and the Continental Kids. Oh my gosh, that's such a great name. Yeah. Well, no, actually, I have that backwards. Oh, okay. That is their real name. And in the uh, movie, they're called Herbie and the Heartbeats. Herbie and the Heartbeats. Yeah. But the uh, Flash Cadillac and the Continental Kids were founded in 1969. And it says they were inspired by the retro brand Shanana. Sure. Shanana, they kept going for a long time. Yeah. They had a show in the 80s when I was a kid. They had a Shanana oh. show. Yeah, because the principal here with those glasses. Uh, he's, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's stepped like he's stepped right out of 1951. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can see, I can sort of see the 60s now. Starting, you know, there's the infancy of the 60s in this uh, in this movie. Man, I cannot get enough of Cindy Williams' face. I know. I love watching her. <laughs> She's <experience>. watching. Because <laughs> they say that acting is reacting, right? There was a, a yeah. movie, October Sky, and I saw one of those little, you know, GQ's been doing that. You know, this actor goes through all their pivotal roles. Oh, okay. Talks about them a little bit. They had one with Jake Gyllenhaal, and he was in October Sky. And there's yep. a bit where he's talking to his dad, played by Chris Cooper, and they have a acrimonious relate. They have a, they have a relationship where they're they're always at each other's throats because the dad's a miner and he wants his son mm. to go in the mine, and his son is like, I don't, I hate this town. I hate what the mind does to people. I want to leave, and uh, it breaks his father's heart. So they have this fight, and in the in the scene, Jake Gyllenhaal's literally seventeen or whatever in the film, and so he's just yelling at his dad. You know, you know, he's just like shouting his lines and shouting his lines. And after like two or three takes, Chris Cooper was like, "Okay, I gotta talk to you for a second here. Um, listen to what I'm saying." Right? Like, hear what I'm saying to you. Okay. And then respond to that. You know, like, hear my line, let it hit you, and then respond to me. You know, so we are having a fight. But we got to have an actual fight. Like I am oh, okay. saying, I am saying stuff that is really hurting you here, and you have to let it hurt you, and you have to let the camera see it hurt you, and then you have to respond back. And so, because you'll see a lot of actors that are just waiting for their turn to talk. Oh, okay, yeah. But actual acting is 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 a hearing what the person said. So there's like Cindy Williams doesn't say a word for this whole exchange, but she's the focal point of the scene because her eyes yeah. flicking back and forth between uh, Mr. Crute and uh, Ron Howard. She's yeah. she's just hilarious in this scene. She's so <laughs> expressive, and she's on the edge of her seat wondering what's going to happen. And this could be, yeah. you know, this might be take take 15 or whatever but it really looks like it's it's happening for the first time and she's you know paralyzed with fear over what's <laughs> what's going on and it's uh it's wonderful that's so so nice what a great face she's got it's like he tries to expel steve too don't come here you know don't even bother coming here monday and he's like haha gotcha i graduated last semester <laughs> yeah zing what a great movie now, what a great couple of minutes. Yeah. It's, it's been uh, wonderful talking to you. You got to, yeah, have a listen to that uh, El Loco cha-cha-cha. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to look that up. Because you, you'll be like, you'll be shocked. You'll be like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> that's one thing with this movie too. Like I, with the soundtrack and everything, it's like when, like growing up, my dad kind of raised us on a lot of the oldies, you know, that he grew up with. So sure. I, I have a nice appreciation of 
a lot of songs and especially you know like he says about buddy holly it's like i i really do like i love listening to buddy yeah <laughs> buddy holly <laughs> it was great and you know that really was the day the music died like that was three greats it'd be like I don't know, Michael Jackson and Prince dying in the same, oh, yeah. you know, train crash or something. I'd be like, yeah. what? Like, uh, oh, and you know, because we've had like David Bowie and, and, uh, and Michael Jackson and Prince die over the last yeah. few years. But if they had all gone on one day on the same plane, like that would like be. Like at the cusp of their. Yeah, right. At the cusp of careers their careers. Too. <laughs> right at the height of their careers. It'd be like, yeah. well, that's it for music. You know, like yep. that's that's a huge chunk of music just yeah. wiped off the map. But I, I like, uh, like I remember for a long time, I or for a long time ago, I went out with an art history major, and I would say, you know, and I'm some pieces of art I don't get, like like Joan Miro. It's like a circle and a triangle attached by a line, and no. one of them's red and one of them's green. And this is one of those paintings that goes for you know twenty three million dollars at auction mm -hmm. or something like that. And you're like, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Or like. <laughs> Rothko, it's like three stripes of color and it's everybody's ooing and aahing over the three stripes yeah. of color and you're like, I can't, I cannot get my head around this. Dali, <laughs> you can sort of get, but Dali sort of mastered realism and then started to warp it. But if somebody's studied it and they're like, well, this is why Jean Moreau was so important because at the time realism was all the rage and Jean Moreau was saying, you know, screw your realism. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. You know, and uh, it blew people's minds. And then you, when you see it in context, you're like, oh. And so that's kind of like with this Latin influence that created Louis Louis, you sort of see how everything's in flux and everything leads into into everything else. And then it's had a five or six tributaries form into this one band, which creates this huge revolution. Like, uh, you know, what was it? Animal Sounds by the Beach Boys, right? Like, you, like I, the Beach Boys to me were just soft rock growing up. Like, I, I was like, okay, I guess they were a big deal at one point. But when you understand what led into it and how it changed the entire landscape of music, how it was like the defining album of like many people's three-year period of being a youth after high school or whatever, you're like, oh, this was uh, massive. And it's kind of, or like, you know, Zeppelin went through like like nine or 10 band members before they ended up yeah. on the, uh, and they were just like studio musicians. And then they just found this combo, boom huge uh so it's kind of this is probably a fascinating podcast for you to get into to uh to research all this music and find out where it came from oh yeah because none of it came out of nowhere you know like no and uh and finding out how it was created and where the influences came from and you know how it got famous because like, i didn't i had no idea that louis louis was almost invisible are the Kingsmen, I wonder uh, or if any of the members are still kicking around. I didn't look to see if that was... I wonder if they're still, uh, you know, maybe they're still doing shows every now and again. Oh, they were a garage rock band. That's why it sounded like they were in a garage because they were literally, they were doing garage rock. I mean, it must have been like uh, Nirvana to a lot of people. They must have sounded so grungy and so rough. Yeah. Their first album was on the uh, Billboard Top LPs chart for 131 weeks. Wow. Well, do we have anything else for minute 18? No, we have very much, very much covered everything. Just for the Kingsmen, though, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, they got like 15 former members and they've got six current members. So they're still, uh, they're still going. 
So I guess they go to, we have a big fairground here. And in the, in the summer, they'll have concerts, like 80s concerts or something. And they'll have like Cindy oh, Lauper. Cool. They'll have like, you know, people that are still alive and touring come through and sing their hits. And uh, they're, that's always a fun fun concert to go to. But I suppose that's the kind of thing that the Kingsmen would still play. They'd still show yeah. up to different fairgrounds around, the, around, uh, around America to play their hits. But yeah, that's it for, for these minutes. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. This has been delightful. It's been absolutely delightful. Yeah. Thank you for guesting and lending your expertise on a lot of music and movie-related items. Yeah. I hope I didn't talk too much there, but it was. Uh, I love these minutes, and I'm really, really yeah. happy that you asked me to be on. Good minutes. All right. Well, that finishes up our Minute 18, so join us back tomorrow as we continue to cover American Graffiti one song at a time. He's really fast, isn't he?